Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. This week I'm in California, in particular at Apple's September event where we've seen the launch of three new iPhones, an update to the Apple Watch, a new iPad and more details on Apple Arcade and Apple TV Plus services. Joining me to discuss the big announcements from the event is iNewspaper tech editor Rhiannon Williams. Hello. And Monocle's tech correspondent David Phelan. Hello. And if that wasn't enough to get you to listen on, earlier in the month I caught up with Red Dwarf, Scrap Heap Challenge and fully charged host Robert Llewellyn to talk about smart meters, electric cars and what our homes will look like in the future. But for now, back to Apple and Rhiannon, let's start with you. New iPhones, what do you think? New iPhones, yeah, another year. Um, It was cool. It was three different models we saw um, announced yesterday and there's been a lot of interest, as you'd expect, um, from online. Lots of people letting their opinions known. It seems the two new uh, shades of the iPhone 11 in green and purple picked up a lot, a lot of interest. People very keen to see what they look like in the flesh. Um, Because it can be hard to tell what they look like through your photos um, on your phone, so they'll be keen to see those. And the iPhone 11 Pro and iPhone 11 Pro Max as well. Yeah, and David? Well, what I thought was really interesting, picking up on the design um, element that you mentioned, Rianne, is that with the iPhone Pro, we didn't know what the colours were going to be like. We didn't know what the matte finish was going to be like. And although people thought they knew where the camera block was going to be, nobody knew that the lenses themselves would be raised above the the block, which would be rather smaller than uh, previously thought. So for the last few months, people have been saying it was quite a controversial design. In fact, it looked I think great, but way better than we'd been led to believe. And that was one of the most striking things for me. I think that's, the design has been quite polarizing, certainly looking online comments, talking to the team and things like that. Some people are like, no, just no. And other people are like, yeah, actually, it's quite cool. And having seen it, seen it in the flesh, I, I kind of tend to agree. I think the concept of, of, of the camera section enclosure or whatever in the leaks and all the other stuff, but it was that sense of um, actually up close and personal. It, kind of, it wasn't as, as harsh or as, sure. as polarizing as I thought. Now, one of the other big things that Apple was very keen to focus on yesterday is photography, and certainly pushing photography for a pro user. Um, do you think they've done enough, David? Um, well, we'll have to wait and try it, but the triple camera and the way the three cameras work together is, I think, what will set it apart. Three 12 megapixel sensors and uh, obviously three different focal lengths. Now, other camera phone manufacturers have done this as well, but uh, everything that I've seen suggests that the software that's behind it will make them work together in a way that could deliver phenomenal results. Certainly the pictures we've seen so far uh, have looked amazing. And night mode, Rhiannon? Yes. Now, there's been a lot of criticism from Apple across the year that they've kind of fallen behind slightly with against the Pixel against the Huawei and Samsung's with their sort of night mode, sort of low light environments. Do you think they've done enough? I think night mode is an interesting one because it's one of the easiest ways to tell the quality of a camera, basically. Mm. Taking photos in low light 
conditions either looks great or it's just so muted that you can't differentiate any points in it it's very clear that it's not really up to scratch but the apple have been very smart about making it an automatic feature insofar as the sensor is able to say all right i'm in low light conditions i'm going to automatically brighten it you know the user doesn't actually have to do anything and that is a key point i think that sort of simplicity when it comes to using iphone cameras is that Apple designs the cameras in a way that it is very easy just to point and shoot and you can still get brilliant cameras. You don't have to fiddle around with these menus. You don't have to make the adjustments that some of the other Android handsets would have you do to get the same results. And I think that's something that a lot of people that might be looking to upgrade would be compelled by. I think I agree. I think that the way it's just something you don't have to think about, that it's, it's not oh, it's getting a bit dark, I'd better switch on night mode. That's all done for you, or not, as needed. Uh, Apple decides what the best result will be and is usually pretty reliable at getting you there. Now, putting you both on the spot, oh. I would like one reason why you think people listen to this, either for the iPhone 11 or the iPhone 11 Pro or Pro Max, why they should upgrade. For me... I think the, probably the biggest feature that people will benefit from is the ultra, the new ultra-wide sort of uh, camera lens on there. But Rhiannon, I'll, ta- I'll let you. We'll give David the hard task of following the third <laughs> reason. So, what was, you, what would you? Why would you say if someone's looking to upgrade, why should they go and upgrade? I'd say if you're a die-hard, die-hard rather iPhone user, and you don't, you're fed up of people that have Android smartphones sort of banging on about how superior their camera is. It's a perfect chance to sort of say, well, you know. 12 megapixels, like Apple's always said that you don't need to cram in more megapixels to up the quality of a picture. Like they've sort of done this for years. They've stuck to it. Other cameras have gone up to like 50, 60 megapixels. It doesn't really make that much of a difference if it's still a noisy image. But if you're still sort of dedicated to iOS, you want to stick with Apple, this is a great reason to start investing in the new ones. Uh, for me, it's battery life. I think, I know it's a very basic thing, but I think it's important to people, it's important to all of us at that moment when we see we're down to 10% and furious at the phone for, for, for being there. And the fact that it's an extra hour on the iPhone 11 compared to the 10R, four hours more. That did seem quite impressive, I think. And five hours more on the Max. I, I think that will be, if it, it proves to be the case, I think that will be remarkable. Still to come... Rhiannon and David talk about Apple Watch and Apple services. The, the people that really care about having the latest iPhone or whatever can now have an iPhone that their mum doesn't own or isn't interesting <laughs> in owning. What's wrong with their mum owning it? Well, I think there's that cachet of like, I've got this amazing phone and then I've, oh, my mum's got it as well. <laughs> Apologies anyway. to all the mums. You've <laughs> just got a very chic mum, Stuart, that's all. You could argue that Robert Llewellyn has been living in the future for a number of decades already. First with his performance of Crichton the Robot in popular BBC sci-fi comedy series Red Dwarf, and then more recently for the last eight years as host of his very own show Fully Charged on YouTube that covers all things to do with electric vehicles. His latest project in collaboration with Smart Energy GB sees him looking at the future of the smart home and how it can be one that is both eco-friendly and sustainable. I started by asking him what his involvement in the Smart Meter campaign actually was. Well, the, the, it's really a longer term thing. So when, if you live in a house now with a fridge and a telly and lights and an electric water heater, it might not make immediate sense why a smart meter is good is a, a really good thing for you to have in your house because you're just normal and you just turn lights on and you do the washing and you, you know, and you pay your electricity bill and it's, uh, you know, uh, 
you know, that's about it. That's our attitude to electricity. What is happening now, and it's happening at incredible speed, are really complex changes to the national grid, to the way electricity is distributed, to where it comes from, uh, you know, how it's produced. And those things are going to start affecting more and more people. So it's kind of slightly hidden uh, from the general public at the moment, not not in terms of conspiracy theories, but it's, it, you know, offshore wind, for example. If you don't live near the sea, if you don't live on the coast uh, and you can see windmills on the horizon, you're probably not aware that a huge proportion of our electricity comes from wind. And that is, as we all know, and as we're constantly told, it's variable. But the, pro- the problem with offshore wind is more it's variable on the positive side, i.e. it's producing too much electricity at the times that we don't necessarily need it. And so there's enormous changes going on with how we store that electricity to use it at times when we do need it. And maybe the wind isn't blowing so much. Um, and one of the key things in that is the data of household use, factories using it, shops, hospitals, you know, when they use it, when they use less, how we can mitigate that, how we can understand how that our usage yeah if we were really good human beings we'd all use the same amount of electricity all day all the time and then we wouldn't have this problem but we tend to all want to use it at the same time which causes huge peaks and then we tend to not want to use it at other huge times when we're asleep which causes huge troughs and managing that is extremely complicated and smart meters in a sense are a kind of community benefit rather than an individual benefit at the moment it will benefit the world at large, a bit like vaccinations. You know, it, it, it's uh, the, the, the more people that have smart meters, the more information there is about our use of electricity and the better managed that can be by the national grid. And it is when you get things, like in my house, I have batteries, I have electric cars, I have solar panels. It's an absolute essential part of that to understand when you turn things on, when turn things off. And you can, you can with, and I am not a tech wizard, Believe me, in fact, there's someone's about to arrive at my house very soon who is. <laughs> and the reason he's arriving is because I haven't got a clue what's going on half the time. But I can understand how to use that. So I can see how much energy the fridge is using, how much energy the water heat is using, when it's using it. And I can control that. So I heat the water at night in the winter when electricity is very cheap. We have a variable rate tariff. And I don't heat it in the day if there's no sun. Today it's sunny. My water is heating at the moment because it's not costing me anything. But do you think that's one of the problems, though, with the smart meter is that sense of it gives you all that information. And then a lot of us don't know then what we're supposed to be doing with this information. Yes, it's that, that sense is. of I've turned yeah. the kettle on. I've, ta- I've seen the spike go up. Isn't yeah. that amazing? But like, what do I do now? Does that mean that I should? Is it is it a bad kettle? Is it a good kettle? Yeah. Like, how <laughs> do we go about sort of what is the information do you think the smart meters are there for consumers like you and i or is it to help as you talked about to help the electricity companies to manage the grid better and therefore it's kind of that's really why you should get one so it's more of an environmental impact from a bigger larger scale yeah or it's the it's just because you know i've tried these things in the past sometimes and you go wow we're burning you know with, with this we're using this much energy at the moment no idea how or why yeah. or what's causing the problem <laughs> yeah I mean, excuse me, I was just drinking a cup of tea exactly at that moment. Um, they, uh, I, think, I think it is a combination of the two. And, and at the moment, if you have a, a two-bedroom apartment and you don't have solar panels on the roof and you just have a telly and a fridge and a washing machine or whatever and lights, 
you know, it is of less benefit to you, I will agree, uh, right today. But I would suggest that within two or three years, it will be much more benefit. And it is all those things that all the new electricity companies that are coming onto the market with really extreme variable rate tariffs, because this is a thing that general consumer doesn't doesn't know. And why should they? And it's not it's not a failing on their part. But for example, the cost of electricity on occasions is massively above what we're paying for it per per unit per kilowatt hour, hugely above. I mean, I'm talking at peak times in the evening. You know, uh, the first uh, Monday night in November apparently is always the worst time. We turn everything on because it's gone dark and it's cold and we're miserable and depressed. Uh, um, and so the the the, the changes that are, are taking place and and uh, the concept of a variable tariff makes a big difference. If you can store electricity when it's cheap and use it when it's expensive, it absolutely benefits the people in their house, apartment, whatever. It also benefits the grid. So it is a, it is absolutely a two-way thing. And I think that is the key thing that I've definitely learned from having electric vehicles. That's what made me aware of this, was the, 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 the wholesale price cost of electricity varies from hundreds of pounds per kilowatt hour to, to minus, literally less than a nothing. So it goes negative. When we have a huge surplus, particularly of offshore wind, um, the, the, the wholesale price of electricity just drops through the floor. This happens a lot in Germany. And it's a really difficult thing to manage, both economically and technically. And so that is a time when it makes enormous sense for everyone to be, you know, charging their batteries, plug their cars in, all that stuff, because that electricity is very, very either so cheap you can't count it or and also very clean. And it's it's mitigating those things. We're, we're moving into a different energy market in general around the world, not just in this country, but we're actually quite far ahead in this country. We're ahead of many other countries, mainly because of wind, but also solar. So in the, those days in the summer where, you know, we're over 50 percent of our electricity is coming from solar and wind. And that is un, unimaginable even five years ago. And so and so it is very much about managing that. And I mean, the two things that are that are that. I hoped would work, but I was slightly skeptical about just because of costs and the hassle of it. A battery in your house five years ago, I was skeptical about it. Now, it makes real, genuine economic sense for people to put batteries in. And most specifically, and the thing that does still really drive me mad, when people build new houses, that is when this this technology should be installed from the start, because then it's not it doesn't it adds a tiny percentage of cost to the total cost of the house, and it makes living in the house incredibly cheap. This is the really it it saves a lot of money on your electricity bill. This is the the crucial point. So, how do you think we can get people to be more aware of the energy they they do use? Because again, it's that sense of you know you're saying you're just having a cup of tea. I'm probably after this, I'll go make a cup of tea. Yeah. At the moment, I have no concept of of how much that cup of tea costs me to make. Uh, and I can say, well, I bought the tea yeah. bags or I, you know, pressed the button on the Nespresso machine or, or what have you. So how do you think we can get more people yeah. to be aware of, of, of spending electricity or using electricity for the, for the good? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I, I mean, it's, you know, the smart meter. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's so obvious that that is what it is. And I don't think, I mean, I, I'm a, a, a sort of an energy nerd, if you like. So I've come to learn a lot more about it than most people will ever need to know. And it's not a great benefit. And I, and I put the kettle on. And I don't even think about it, to be perfectly honest, because it's a couple of pence. It might cost to boil a kettle 
it's not a lot of uh, electricity. When you charge a car, um, that is a big chunk. And that's when you become aware of it, because charging a car is like boiling a kettle for nine hours. You know, so it's it makes a big difference. So then you want to use the electric, the cheapest electricity you can for that. And so those, and it, it is that awareness that then sparks off further awareness. And for the people I've met who don't have electric cars but have a couple of solar panels on the back of the house and a little battery, they become extremely aware of it because they see their electricity bill fall through the floor, particularly in the summer. You know, where when you've got a monthly electricity bill in single figures you go, oh, something has changed. You know, and I get that now with, and I have two electric cars. I mean, we, we have a lot of solar and batteries, but I have two electric cars and my electricity bills from uh, sort of mid-May till September are single figure, you know, under 10 pounds a month. And that's, we, are, we actually use way more electricity than the average household because of the cars. And so what cars do you drive just out here from, from an electric point of view? Uh, I have a, a, I'm very happy to say I have a Tesla Model 3, the new Tesla that just came out because I've been waiting for three years <laughs> to get it. And uh, I've only had it uh, 10 days, so which is a remarkable car. And we're, One of the first ones in the country. It kind of is. It's difficult because I don't want to be a Tesla fanboy because I think it's really important that other companies produce them. The other car we have, my wife's car, is a Kona, uh, Hyundai Kona, which has similar range to the Tesla and is much, much cheaper brilliant car actually it's proved itself beyond measure to be really good so i mean both cars have a 250 to 300 mile range depending on the time of year and how you drive them so a real step change to the first generation of electric vehicles so uh, having used an electric car for some time uh one of the main ways people charge cars obviously if they're not doing it at home is 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 when you're out and about with the with the network of charges. If you've got both a Tesla and a, and a and a regular electric car, how how are you finding finding that system? And could could it be improved? Um, yeah. So the, in a sense, the Tesla is cheating because Tesla have installed this remarkable, very fast network of charges all over the place. So that you know, all over Europe, all over North America. China, Australia, even uh, you know, they, and that is that gives a Tesla in a massive unfair advantage in that sense of being able to do long trips without any hesitation. The charging network in the UK was the early installations were uh, using technology that hadn't really matured, but the, the the installations that are going in now, the new charging. Uh, posts that are being put in now. This is rapid charges I'm talking about on places like motorways. The newer ones are much more reliable, much faster, much easier to use. And I, that is a really critical thing. It's not so much uh, the availability, it's the ease of use when you get there. So you you know there's a charger there, you drive down the road, you go to the charger, you want to be able to plug it in and your car charges with minimal hassle. And I've been arguing for this for a long time and it is finally happening. There are now tap to pay charges. You just use your debit or credit card tap on the thing and it charges your car and you pay for it but it's a convenience thing it's more expensive than charging at home but when you need to go a long way it's very useful so we need we have a long long way to go before that is reliable we're talking about a a very comprehensive charging network which currently supports one to maybe two percent of our vehicle fleet it's only you know one and a bit percent of cars on the road in the uk are electric at the moment when that ramps up, which it is doing, it's the only type of car that is selling more now than last year. All other cars are selling less now than last year. Uh, you know that once that starts to really make an impact, then we have to put in 
a lot of, of rapid chargers, but probably you will use them much less than you assume. If you've never driven an electric car, you think, oh, I'll always be going to the rapid charger. I need the rapid charger every day. You'll use it once or twice. I use them once or twice a month and I drive a lot, you know, so uh, above average amount of miles I do for work. And I don't use them that often. I really don't. And as cars, more and more cars have now got 150 to 200 miles range, 200 miles driving is four hours sitting still. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a I have a bladder range. I've worked it out. It's gone up actually. I think I'm getting healthier. About 165 miles I can drive nonstop, and I've got to get out. <laughs> I think the, the biggest thing I learned when when switching over to electric was the the concept of um, your car is always charged and ready to go the full range as soon as you leave the door the exactly yeah. rather than that you get in the car you drive you go to drive away and you're like oh i've got to stop for petrol stop for petrol you don't do that anymore quarter yeah. a tank whatever which is fantastic yeah. so bearing in mind that charging is getting better what do you think the biggest barrier to entry now is for getting an electric vehicle i mean i think it is the uh, the the cost of purchase so uh, uh, you know when people see the price of a a, a new electric car they are generally this is changing very rapidly but they are generally a couple of grand more than the equivalent petrol or diesel car of that size and you know shape and everything but that is that but five years ago they were ten thousand pounds more ten years ago they were twenty thousand pounds more so the, the the clear indication is the cost of electric vehicles is coming down and the cost of petrol and diesel cars is staying very sta- stable it isn't going up or down. It's staying the same. But electric cars, the head of Volkswagen, the head of Mercedes, now Ford, all those dudes at the top of those companies are saying 2022 is when the price will be the same. So you go into a showroom and you see the Volkswagen ID, which is an amazing little car like a Golf, will cost the same as a Golf or probably less very soon after that. But the the other crucial thing is, and you'll discover this with longer term use of the Leaf, is the running costs, the the non-fuel costs of that car are lower because there's nothing in it. There's no engine. You don't need oil changes. You don't need to have the gearbox fluid change. You don't, there's no clutch. There's no electronics that get hot because you've got a big vibrating box there. They, they require much less servicing and the servicing is much cheaper. So the running costs are so much lower uh, and there are challenges within that because of fuel duty. Uh, you know what? Are, what a government's going to do as that fuel duty note? I mean, it's dropped already fractionally. It's it's possible to measure it because of all the electric cars, but that's going to drop off a cliff. So what are the what are the government going to do? That's a massive part of government income. Yeah. So I think there's plenty of hurdles ahead, but they're probably not range, cost of the car, life of the longevity of the batteries. Those things I think are, are now irrelevant. So there's plenty of other problems. So you've, I know you've obviously got fully charged, which has been running a number of years. And so presumably you've tested or tried most electric vehicles that are on the market. Yeah. What What's the most exciting electric vehicle you've driven? And I say vehicle in a, in a very loose way. It could be right. a truck. It could be anything. Yeah. I mean, well, I've just lit recently uh, dug a big trench in my garden with, with an electric digger, which wow. I have to say I enjoy. It's, it's the latest episode of Fully Charged. I enjoyed more than a man my age probably should. I found enormous pleasure in digging big holes in my garden. Um, but it was a 100% electric digger. It's a, a battery electric digger. It works really well. It's amazing. So, I mean, there's all manner of stuff. I think electric aircraft is the one thing that 10 years ago when I started fully charged, I would never have 
guessed if someone said, oh, they'll soon be battery electric planes, you just go, don't be stupid. You know, that's not going to work. Let's concentrate on what we can do. There are Rolls-Royce right at this minute in Bristol are developing electric aircraft, uh, electric powered aircraft for short haul passenger flights, 20, 25 people. So smaller planes that will, you know, you would fly from London to Edinburgh in. Uh, and they're battery. They're powered by batteries. And all the airlines really, really want them. There's enormous pressure from the airlines to develop these things. Electric boats. I recently went on a battery electric ferry from Denmark to Sweden, assuming it was going to be a little boat with five cars on it. It was massive. It had 20 huge trucks and about 100 cars. It was a great wow. big proper ferry. It runs on batteries. It charges at either end. Uh, with a with a phenomenal, you know, when you think of how when you plug a car in, that's a lot of electricity. That is nothing. Every time they plug this boat in, it's sort of using the same power as a small city. You know, it's phenomenal crazy, isn't it? technology with robot arms that push the. And it is literally a wire that gets plugged in. But my goodness, it's it's a big wire and it's a big plug. So that stuff is developing very fast uh, in ways that I would never have foreseen. And also the use of batteries in homes. You know, the battery technology is now being produced at such a large degree that the cost is really coming down very rapidly, like solar panels. You know, those the cost of those are coming down, and that changes the market very dramatically because big companies suddenly go, oh, why are we burning gas when we can do it for a tenth the price with solar and batteries? And that's happening all over the world. And so do you see that coming coming back to the home to sort of come full circle on this conversation? Do you, do you see everybody having a battery in their house in the future and, and are there any other things obviously an electric car plugged you know plugged in outside are there any other things that you think that we need to adapt and change in the home to sort of become more electric eco-friendly well i mean it is it is a combination of uh, in a sense envir- environmental advantages and economic advantages that if you can produce the, the if you like the fuel you use to run your home in your home, the advantages are, are, are multiple. Not it's not only cheaper for you, but it also means that elect, you're using more of that electricity more wisely because it isn't being transmitted across hundreds of miles of power lines, which uses up a lot. You know, we waste a lot of the electricity we generate because we have to transport it so far. So the more local production there is, and that doesn't necessarily mean solar panels on your roof but in your community if there is a solar installation with batteries and that is happening so there's a place in uh, on the uh, outskirts of oxford where hundreds of homes have small batteries they, they don't have solar panels on the roof but the local uh, offices and uh, library has a very big solar array and that feeds those batteries you know that technology is what ra- you know ramping up so quickly and those people this is in affordable homes this is not posh middle class people with big houses uh, their electricity bills are lower, really, really noticeably lower, you know, and it saves them money. And that's, a, you know, I think that is a, a brilliant project. And those need to be ramped up all over the country and do need, you know, government support and incentives to make that installation more economically viable. But it is becoming economically viable by the very nature of the fact that the technology is getting cheaper. Earlier, we were talking about new iPhones, but that's not all that Apple launched this week. The company also launched a new Apple Watch with an always-on display, a 10.2-inch iPad for the masses, and finally gave us pricing and release details for Apple Arcade and Apple TV. So, David, back to you. Do you think people are going to go for the ceramic, the titanium 
Apple Watch, or are we still in the realms of too luxury for many? Yes, it's a good question. I think, well, to take one step back from there, the fact that now the Series 3, uh, which remains uh, a product available, uh, has dropped in price hugely, that is going to be the, the on-ramp for an awful lot of people who want to see what all this fuss is about uh, with Apple Watch. Um, but maybe it's time when people will be, for about the first time, will be thinking of upgrading. The watch hasn't been around for that long. And if so, the stainless steel, I would say, is still my favorite. I think it looks beautiful. But the titanium uh, looks great. And I think it's, again, it's something, as you were saying, Rhiannon, about seeing it in the flesh. People will go into stores and they'll see the stainless steel and look at the titanium, which is only... Uh, $100 or £100 more. So if you're thinking of spending that much, you might be tempted to look uh, there. Personally, I also love the ceramic, so I, I can see why people would want that, but it is $1,249 over uh, £1,200. So it is something to uh, to be more of a cautious purchase, perhaps. Yeah, I did like the ceramic one. They had a beautiful yellow... I'm sure it's called something a lot more professional than that, but a yellow uh, <laughs> sort of that leather padded loop yes there are pictures on pocket lane you can see me wearing oh. it looking thinking how can i run how fast can i run with this thing <laughs> um Rhiannon, what did you uh, what did you think of, of of the other bits outside of iphone well, i'm interested to see with the series 5 apple watch how the sort of always on display is going to work because that is something that i've, I've never liked in android smartphones it's always it sort of catches my eye i'm always aware that it's there i quite like the fact that you know with an iphone it goes into a sort of blank slate so it'll be interesting to see how that does sort of translate into the watch if it does sort of catch your eye if it is you know the kind of thing that is going to prove a bit irritating the thing i found fascinating about that which i wasn't expecting was that it, the face just doesn't just dim it changes color yeah mm. that was very cool so actually. i thought that there was a, a really nice white face that when you lifted you know when you moved it and it works in the same way as as flicking the wrist slightly and it will bring the screen to life but it was that sense of um, it was a dark you know black face and then I moved my wrist when I was trying it on and it, it became a white face mm. and the screen lit up which I thought was a nice sort of extra touch rather than just that sort of almost like colour e-ink displayed fallback which you've seen on, yeah, on sure. certain sort of Android um, Wear OS devices Yeah. now Arcade Apple Arcade pricing I thought was incredibly aggressive yeah, very competitive, four ninety nine a month. And who do you think that's that's for? Well, I think if if you're a gamer, and I mean, it is a curious thing. People, I think it's different. People tend to buy games because they like a particular game, like Spider Man or whatever, rather than saying, "I just want a bunch of games." And obviously, when you get arcade, you're getting a bunch of games. So um, Apple has to prove that the titles that it's got and the ones we looked at yesterday in the keynote look pretty cool. Um, are going to be of high enough quality and interesting enough to want to sign up for a monthly subscription so that you can play all of them. Because, frankly, a lot of people will just find a few favourites that they'll want to stick to. So I think, it's, I think subscription gaming is in itself an interesting concept. But if anyone's going to do it well, I imagine arcade could be it. Yeah, I thought the thing for me was that sense of they've got a and, a and I think this is the same feeling I had about Apple TV Plus is that they've got to once you've started that that machine you've got to keep on feeding it and it's that sense of you know the monster's got to, he's hungry again you know you've got to keep keep on going and it's that sense of you know if you've signed up to a, 
a gaming service, then you want to make sure that there are good games titles every month coming in. Because if you suddenly realize you've you've signed up, you've downloaded one in the first month, and then six months later, that's all you've played, that suddenly becomes a very expensive game. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Did you, uh, the, I think, one of the big announcements though was, uh, was an old device, was the, the Watch Series 3. Now, for me, it was now coming down to £199, $199. Do you think that's, what do you think of that, Rhiannon? I think it's a very aggressive sort of power play for, yeah. Dave and I were discussing this earlier about the sort of Apple entering the lower end of the market in terms of less expensive sort of rival devices. People, as David mentioned before, people that hadn't necessarily invested in, in an Apple Watch the first time around might be tempted to do so now. Like the Series 3 is fantastic. And that was the first model with cellular. And that could be a good reason, you know, to convince people to try it out for the first time. Like £199 is great. Now, one of the surprise announcements, which I think nobody was expecting, was a new iPad. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And it, it was a new iPad in a size of screen that Apple has never done before, 10.2 inches instead of 9.7 inches, which has always been the standard entry-level iPad. And it was covered off in about four minutes. It was really, really <laughs> fast. And at a very compelling price, $329, £349. The current uh, entry level was very good value already, but this is significantly better with a faster processor, bigger screen, and in the same form factor as the iPad Air, so it can share um, uh, add-ons like the smart keyboard with that. And I think, exactly as Rhiannon's just said, aggressive is the word for, for the pricing of it, and it's a way of making sure that your first iPad is probably not going to be your last, uh, but it's a, a hell of a way to get into the platform. So from final question, Rhiannon will... I'm just going to be mean to David. Let's go with you again, just so he's got to really think about what he's got to make up. If you were to sort of sum up the event in a sentence, how would you do that? Everything you want to see and then some. Oh, that's marvellous. I feel like I'm suddenly on a blind date. That's great. Go on, David. <laughs> Over to you, David. Um, I, I, I don't think I can match that. I think, I think what was expected to be just an iterative step forward was significantly more than that and combine that with things that we haven't even mentioned like the pricing coming down for the iPhone 11 compared to the equivalent phone last year it you suddenly see uh, Apple uh, very determinedly going for a lower price market as well as a higher price market for its iPhones and that seems to be uh, a, a trend that has started but is doing uh, a lot further now that's quite a long sentence that's a very long, sentence. A very long sentence but in the interest of fairness i i think my takeaway seems that it's it's about refining and honing the apple experience in that sense of you know some of the moves that we saw on iphone were steps forward but they weren't huge i think it was that sense of the iphone the iphone pro 11 pro was kind of setting up to be a very considerable different line going forward, but it's not mm. the full step right now. And it's that, and, and the watch is kind of, you know, the, the Series 5 watch is kind of moving on a little bit, but it's there's still quite a lot of Series 4 in that watch. Mm. And so it's that kind of, we've got things that we think are working, let's tweak it slightly, let's refine it, and then move on. Again, long sentence. That was way more than this. <laughs> Mine was just full of commas, but I could hear the full stops yeah. in his. Well, it's a good point, though, about the pro, having a pro range and then the sort of non-pro range in, in for wider range of products now is, is going to sort of really separate people are going to have a clearer idea of what they want, can get from each sort of division mm. 
And I think it will, the other thing I think it will allow is that the people that really care about having the latest iPhone or whatever can now have an iPhone that their mum doesn't own or isn't interesting <laughs> in owning. What's wrong with their mum owning it? Well, I think there's that cachet of like, I've got this amazing phone and then I've, oh, my mum's got it as well. <laughs> Apologies anyway. to all the mums. Yeah, you've just got a very chic mum, Stuart, that's all. <laughs> anyway, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the show, can you please give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform you're listening on? It really will help raise our profile and let others know you liked it too. Until next Friday, pip pip. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 